Welcome to the latest episode of No-Till Farmer, Influencers and Innovators. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. New Leaf Symbiotics sponsors this program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Want to do more with your fields in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, Terrasin by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn, and nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your return on investment for the 2022 growing season and purchase TerraSim directly online for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com 2022. That's newleaf sym.com backslash 2022. Keith Wendt loves data. Even after he retired from his position as an engineer with CNH, which was called International Harvester when he started, he still runs data for the family sharecropping outfit near Effingham, Illinois. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, brought to you by New Leaf Symbiotics, Frank Lesseter talks with Wendt, a farmer and implement designer, about his position at the Red Tractor Company. During his tenure at CNH, Wendt worked to design implements for no-till farming and had designed a spring-based down-pressure adjustment system before electronics innovations beat his system to the market. He's bullish on wheat prices this year and encourages the use of wheat as a cover crop. In this week's podcast, Lesseter and Wendt talk about roots in the family farm, his work at CNH, alternatives to ever-increasing tractor size, and more. So, Keith, tell me where you grew up in uh, Illinois and the, the town and a little about your history. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start off with, um, I guess I'd like to start off with my dad and my mom, because that's where it all started, actually. And kind of an interesting story. They both grew up on farms and uh, my dad was started farming with his dad when they were still using horses for farming, which I know Mm -hmm. you did too. Yep. And my dad always said, you know, farming is really hard. And he said he would never go back to farming once he completed (laughs) his education. But after uh, he served a couple years um, in Europe in World War II, he came home and he decided, you know what? He was tired of taking orders. And he decided that farming wouldn't be so bad after all, and he, he could be his own boss. So there you go. That, right. That's what he did. That plus the fact that his dad had purchased a tractor while he was in the war, and then you know he said, well, you know what, I'm not going to have to take care of the horses anymore. Maybe farming isn't that bad. So right. that's, that's what he did. So he met my mom at a wedding a couple years later, and they got married in 1950, and they started off with 40 acres of ground. And my mom had saved enough money up to buy three dairy cows and a few chickens. 
They went to the bank, got a $1,000 loan. They bought a Massey Harris uh, 44 tractor, a plow, sure. a disc, and a row crop cultivator, and off they went. Over the years then, they, they also managed to raise four boys. So he had plenty of good, free, hired help on the farm. <laughs> right. And so as a result, our, our farm has been very blessed over the years, and we've just you know prospered now for over 70 years, and the, and the farm is still growing to this day. What's the location? And the location is in Effingham, Illinois. It's actually east of Effingham, about uh, 10 miles or 100 miles east of St. Louis, just north of I-70. Oh, okay. Okay, and it's 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 a 7,000-acre farm, and like I said, still growing. We've got uh, my my youngest brother who went to University of Illinois, and he got his degree in ag economics, and he's the one that manages the farm. I'm the second oldest. My oldest brother got his degree in engineering also, ag engineering, and he became a soil and water conservation engineer and worked for NRCS okay. for many years. He's now retired. And my fourth brother is an attorney. So I guess you'd say we have all the bases covered for running a, a prosperous farm. <laughs> so were you an ag engineering grad? I was ag engineering, too. I got my bachelor's and master's degree from University of Illinois, too, in ag, both in ag engineering. Okay. Well, the main crops, corn and soybeans? Corn and soybeans, yes. And we also do winter wheat, and then we double crop the soybeans after the wheat. So that gives us a little extra income and and also uh, provides a cover crop over the wintertime, too, which we we really like. Yeah. So. There's a lot of people getting interested in wheat as a cover crop or a cash crop, but it serves as a cover crop all over the winter. Right. And I'd Maybe. like to do more of I'd like to do more of that, but it's very time consuming, especially when you're doing double cropping. So it, it gets very busy, right. especially in June and July when you're trying to harvest wheat and put a crop of beans in the ground at the same time. So Effingham, you consider that southern Illinois? Yeah, that's kind of south central Illinois. I'll just tell you a little bit more about that. Most of our uh, soil types there are what they classify as a silty clay loam. Sure. And we're just south of U.S. Route 16, which is, uh, that's where the glacial till stopped way back in the Ice Age. And so everything north of that has the good soils, and we have the lighter soils, what what they call timber soils. Like I said, we're, we grow the corn, soybeans, winter wheat, and double crop beans. I live in the Chicago suburbs, actually. That's 200 miles north of the farm, but I sure. still actively participate in all the operations and whenever uh, actual labor is needed on the tractor then I'll go down there if they ever need it. My main responsibility is the data collection, analysis and then creating prescription maps for the farm. Yeah. You you spent a career with Case IH and uh, right. en- engineering and planners and we'll get into that later but tell me uh, tell me about what you're doing with data and uh, analysis etc on the farm. Well, my main job is to, you know, we put out a lot of plots and we we do a lot of experimenting and always trying to, you know, improve our production. We're we're constantly looking at new products and technology that'll, you know, help improve our yield, reduce our cost, improve efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. As far as putting out plots, we do whole field plots. We have GPS on all of our machinery, so we know exactly what we're putting down, where we're putting it, and that obviously really helps us with the, um, you know, recording the data and everything and keeping track of everything. Once we do the harvest and we get all the yield data, that's electronically sent up to me, and I use Ag Leaders SMS software, and I record all the data and put it in there, and I 
also use that for analysis. I took uh, several statistic classes while I was at the university. So uh, we always do replicated trials just like you're supposed to on a whole field basis. And then I look at, you know, the various things that we're experimenting with and decide whether it provides an adequate return on our investment. And if it, you know, after three years, we usually give it three years. If it doesn't look like it's returning an adequate uh, return, then we drop it and we go on to the next bigger and better thing. Give me an example in the last couple of years of something that really proved out and something that didn't do so well. Okay, well, we've been doing a lot of in-row fertilization and things like that. Some years it turns out okay and we get a return, but a lot of years it does not. I'm not sure why because you, you read a lot of articles about fertilization and 2 by 2 fertilization and also uh, applying micronutrients too has produced some good, pretty good yield increases for some farms. But for ours, uh, so far I haven't really seen an adequate return. I've, I've seen some yield increases, but not enough to justify the added expense. Um, we have seen some improvement on split applications of nitrogen on our corn, so we're headed more and more towards that. We apply fungicide, and some years that works and produces a return, and other years it does not. <laughs> right. One of the things that has helped us, though, um, like I mentioned, our soils are lighter. We have a clay pan soil, so about you go 20 inches down and you have a clay pan. Tiling, it, it's not as useful as it is up north, however... We have installed a couple hundred acres of tile, and we have found that in most years it does provide a return. We don't do it over the whole field. We mostly do it in parts of the field where it's really flat sure. and the dirt's a little bit blacker. We use you know, our yield maps along with you know, topography maps that we get from our as-planted files, and we're able to see where we need the tile. And in most years, that has provided a good return, so we'll probably continue on doing that. With the plant, are you doing variable rate seeding? Yes, we've been doing variable rate seeding for quite a few years now. Haven't really seen a good return on that either. For our soils, it kind of depends on how good your emergence is. Our soils are lighter. They have more clay content, so we get some crusting. In the years where we get crusting, the higher populations do better than the lower populations. Mm -hmm. So that's been an eye-opener for us. Also, we've been lowering our population on soybeans, too. So we found out we can save some costs on that, too. So uh, we've been actually working with the University of Illinois on their what they call their DIFM project and sure. they've been helping us uh, put out plots and we've been doing a lot of experimenting with that along with nitrogen management as, uh, as well so we're we've been splitting applications of nitrogen with them and also um, using you know real low rates and real high rates just to see what the returns are on those soybean rates what were you at and how low have you gone well, we we were a long time ago. We were at 180,000 because sure. of the crusting issue. But now, on the average, I would say we're at 160. But we've also gone as low as 120 on some of our soils where we think you know crusting is not going to be a problem, and we're reasonably sure we will get good emergence. Yeah, we've had some no-tillers talk about going as low as 70 or 80,000 plants per acre and, and showing a yield increase, but at the same time, they'll tell you they don't have the courage to do it at all, <laughs> 700 acres. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's Yeah, you're taking a big gamble, that's yeah. for sure. You talked about split fertilizer application. What time are you putting this on? Actually, this year we did something a little different. We don't like putting 
anhydrous on in the fall, but we did this year because we got the anhydrous at a much uh, cheaper rate than where it's at now. Right so we, now, if it's so high price, you might not I, want to put it on I at know. all. <laughs> exactly. And so we actually put all of our um, anhydrous on already at, at 100 pounds, and we use the stabilizer. And we have the clay pan soil, so I don't think we have to worry as much about it leaching into tiles and things mm-hmm. like that. But then we'll also, next spring, we'll put on um, urea, and we do all of our fertilizer variable rate, by the way. So okay. we're very, we do very intensive soil testing. Uh, we do it every two to four years, and we only put on what we need. So we'll put on our P and K and our urea all at the same time. We, we do our own fertilizer. Everything is variable rate. We've been doing that for 25 years now. And then we'll put on, with our planter, sometimes we'll put on a little bit more nitrogen in furrow, and then we'll come back with Y-drops later on, depending on what kind of a year it is. Sure. So what kind of yields do you get on corn and beans and wheat? Well, it varies. You tell me what the weather is going to do, and I can tell you what we did. Our goals for uh, corn, it's uh, 250 bushel, and soybeans are 80 bushel. That's our goal and that may not sound like much to some people, but for our soils, that's a that's a very aggressive goal. Right now, we we also have like three or four hundred acres that we are doing a high management program on, and our goals there are three hundred bushel on the corn and a hundred bushel on the soybeans. So we're doing a lot of different things on that. We're doing even more intensive soil sampling, doing tissue sampling, more in furrow, more two by two, split more split applications of nitrogen foliar feeding, fungicide, and in some cases, some biological applications. You're getting close to meeting those goals? We did. We had one field that averaged 280 bushel. For us, that's that's astronomical. That was a new farm record for us. And right. like I said, for our lighter soils, that's we think that's pretty good. Yeah. Now, with high fertilizer prices and you save some money by getting anhydrous on last fall, you're going to cut back on fertilizer at all this spring or not? Well, first of all, you know, I already told you we only put on what we need. Um, we already we also have our own fertilizer shed. We stockpile it, so we've actually got the shed is full of fertilizer that we bought it a couple of years ago. Ooh, wow, so I don't great. think we're really going to cut back on it. Um, also, the other thing that we've started doing is we found uh, a source for chicken litter, processed sure. chicken litter. So we've been putting that on, and we found that we can raise our P and K levels especially much higher, much faster with the chicken litter. Don't ask me why, but it's been very productive for us. So far, I haven't seen a great yield improvement yet, but I just know that our soil testing shows that we're really doing a good job of raising our fertilizer levels. So, And that's less expensive than commercial fertilizer, so we, we're gravitating more towards that. What about soybeans fertilizing them this spring? We'll put on what the soil test says we need. We we base our VRT maps off the soil samples plus the crop that was removed last year, and we had pretty good yields last year, so I don't think we're going to skimp on fertilizer for this year. Yeah. Oh, great. How about herbicides? Uh... You know, we, we change every year. You know, I, I really can't speak, you know, what we're doing this year. I really haven't been that involved with that, sure. but it's it's a struggle. You know, we've been rotating our chemicals, doing different modes of action, you know, just like everyone else has been. 
Are you asking if it if we're cutting back on it or just what are we doing? Yeah, if you're cutting back, but uh, I mean, I I like hearing that you're spreading out the mold. Yeah, we we won't cut back. I mean, we we do grow so- soybeans for Asgro, and they pretty much require 100% weed-free soybeans. So okay. um, we're probably not going to cut back on the herbicide because we get a if you know if we have fewer weeds, we get a good bonus for that. So we're not going to do that. Yeah. Now you're not. You're not totally uh, no-till. In fact, you told me you were about 10% on your highly yeah. erodible ground. Uh, how do you right. make that decision? Why aren't you no-tilling more? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, we do no-till on all of our ground that's um, erodible. Most of our ground is is relatively flat. Erosion's not a big problem. We have no-tilled, and we suffer a little bit on yield. Sure. Um, I, but having said that, though, I do think eventually... We would like to be no-till 100%, and I think cover crops is also the way to go, too. And like I said, um, I'd like to increase our acreage on wheat, too, because that is a good cover crop, and it's very profitable. It's almost as profitable as corn, and corn's one of our higher net income profit centers, I guess you'd say. Right. Are you uh, Have you looked at strip-till at all? We have not done strip-till, and one of the main reasons there is is our fields are all irregularly shaped, and, you know, if you had a nice square 40 or an 80, mm-hmm. strip till works really nice. We did quite try that. Uh, actually, about 20 years ago, we tried strip till. We did not see an improvement. And uh, Again, I'm not sure why. I think it's because our fields are already fairly high fertility, and we just haven't seen the need for it. We could probably save some money doing it, but like I said, I I guess so far, what we're doing seems to be working for us. Right. Double crop beans, are you no-tilling those or using both? Yeah, yeah I, I meant to say that. Yeah, after we take our wheat off, we totally double no-till crop that. So we've got that, and we've got, you know, the uh, no-till on the uh, highly erodible ground. Mm-hmm. And I also should have mentioned that we um, do, uh, we have a lot of CRP ground, too, and we've been gradually increasing that over the years too so we we do not like erosion we, we're trying to get rid of that wherever we can are you taking any crp land back into cash crops or? no okay no we've Maybe. been increasing crp gradually over the years right well you with your analysis you must know that's paying off for you yeah yeah it has uh the ground we take out of crp it's you know, it's rolling, erosion-prone, and it's next to trees or woods. We like leaving buffer strips along the streams anyway to keep the soil out of there. So, it, yeah, it's been working for us. I'm impressed with what you're telling me you're doing with this data and analysis and collection. And I was reading recently from a couple of crop consultants that said, we got a lot of farmers out there that collect this data, but they don't do anything with it. They don't know how to use it. They don't pay somebody to do it for them. They say we're they're missing the boat. They collected it and they're not getting any, much out of it. I I totally agree with you. I I agree. If you yeah, if you're going not going to do anything with the data, there's no use collecting the data. Right. What do you got for a planter? I assume you're running with your background. You're running a Case IH planter. <laughs> yes, we are. We actually just switched to 20 inch rows. We got two 60 foot planters on 20 inch rows. We plant soybeans and corn at the same time. We're actually uh, changing our, uh, when we start planting soybeans, we're going much earlier now. We're starting in mid-April, and we hope to get done in April and also get the corn done by the first week in May. 
How many rows on your planters? So that'd be 36 rows on a 60-foot planter. A lot of people are talking about maybe today it makes more sense to plant soybeans ahead of corn. Yeah, what do you think? That's, that's what we've heard. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to do. And uh, last year, it actually did pay off for us. We planted most of our soybeans in April, and it paid off. Yeah. I remember at the first no-till conference in 1993, Howard Doster, who's now deceased, but he talked about even then, you should buy another planter and try to plant corn and soybeans at the same time because it was paying off even back then. Right, right. And I always remember back in the old days, they always said, ain't if you get your soybeans in in May, you know, you're fine. But uh, obviously that isn't true anymore. So how do you got your planter rigged? What do you got on it? Colders, row cleaners? Down yeah, we've gradually been shifting to the newer technology. We've got precision planting meters on them now, the belts, so we can go high speed. We've got liquid inferral fertilizer across all the rows. And it's the Case IH row unit, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just did our benchmark study on no-till, which is coming out in the next issue. But one of the things to look at is coulters. Only 44% of the no-tillers answered our survey are running coulters these days. I take it you're not running them. No, we got the Case IH planter with the staggered disc, so we don't feel like we have the need for them. But we do. Yeah. I forgot to mention we do run the residue managers, mm-hmm. and we also run um, automatic down pressure too, the hydraulic yeah. down pressure system. So. Well, you go back six years, and only 41% of our people were running down pressure. Now it's at 61%, so it's really yep. caught on. Yeah, how I think you, that's the right thing do you, to do. Well, let's talk about that. How do you measure the value and investment of the down pressure system? I guess I really – we haven't. We've never put any plots out doing that. We could sure. do it, but we haven't. We just know it's the right thing to do. Right. And we we do go from – some areas in our fields that are soft versus, you know, harder soil types, mm-hmm. and we know that we need it. And we also have areas that have higher residue than others. And also when you go from conventional or min-till to no-till within a field, you have to have it. Yeah. You mentioned you just went to 20-inch rows. Is that on both corn and soybeans? Yes. Yeah, we, we've we been on – actually, we were on 15-inch row soybeans, and 30-inch corn. And then we put out some corn plots, and we found out our 20-inch rows gave us a 2-3 to three bushel advantage, and we decided to go 20-inch on everything. So that's, that's what we've done. That was Frank Lesseter and Keith Went talking about trials at his Effingham family farm. We'll come back to the conversation in a moment. Before we do so, Thanks to New Leaf Symbiotics for sponsoring today's podcast. Want to do more with your fields in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 46 bushels per acre in corn. And that's $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your return on investment for the 2022 growing season and purchase TerraSim directly, online, for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com backslash 2022. Now let's get back to engineer Keith Wend and Frank Lesseter as they continue the discussion. 
you mentioned uh, high-speed planting. How fast are you going? We've been going 8 to 10 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And Ken- if, we, if we had to, I think we could go even faster. Yeah. Kinsey just came out at the Farm Machinery Show with a new planter. And for next year, they say we're going to run it at 12 miles an hour. You know, it gets to the point, though, yeah, you get good spacing. But my thing is, is that I think depth control is just as important. And if you're going over some ground that's fairly rough and you see that row unit bouncing up and down, that scares right. me. Right. And even with automatic down pressure, you're still going to get bounce. Mm-hmm. And so we we like to control our depth. So if we have the time, we'd like to go. For now, we'd like to go a little slower. Yeah. What kind of tillage are you doing in your minimum till ground? It's it's uh, it's all vertical tillage. So okay. we hit it real light in the fall, and then one pass, a light light pass in the spring, and then we plant. Compaction of concern. Not really. Our our soils are. I said we have clay con, high clay content, but we also have a higher sand content, mm-hmm. so we don't get as much compaction as you normally would in the loam soils of some of the richer soils. Like I said, though, we do have a clay pan down at 20 inch level, and that's our compaction layer right there. Yeah, I don't think there's any use ripping that up. We have tried that. We haven't seen any benefit in doing that, so we just leave it. Yeah. Well, your mother and dad started with 40 acres, and you're at 7,000. You're going to keep growing or stay there? Or you don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. Um, fortunately, our family's fairly large. A lot of the uh, kids and grandkids now are purchasing land mm-hmm. and then renting it back to the farm instead of finding other renters. So sure. it helps to have a big family, I guess. So <laughs> I guess that remains to be seen. It's 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 hard to predict. Land prices are just, you know, going sky high now, even in our area. So, you know, you can only handle so much. Right. So on cash rent, what are you willing to pay the cousins? <laughs> well, uh, actually, we don't cash rent the cousins. All the cousins and grandkids, it's crop share. It's one-third, okay. two-thirds, and it's okay. worked out pretty well. But uh, my brother that runs the farm has been very good about that. He gives us the highest price that he gets for the crop. Uh-huh. So, in other words, if we sell corn for $4 and $6, they'll get the $6. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's so, pretty good. That's that's a great benefit. So, how many family members would you guess are, are involved in owning land that's in the operation? Well, there's four brothers, and sure. then there's ten grandchildren, and every okay. one of the grandchildren owns some farm yeah. ground well, that great. they rent back. All right. What have I missed talking about the farming operation? I guess the one thing I would like to mention is that we have GPS on all of our equipment, auto mm-hmm. guidance. Uh, we use uh, RTK. We have our own RTK base, so we have correction signal for the GPS. And most of our drainage is not done with tile, but it's surface drainage. Okay. And so whenever we do the as-applied files for our planting, we get topographical maps. And so now we know exactly where we need to put the surface ditches. So one of my jobs is to keep track of all that information. And my brother that worked for the Soil Conservation Service lays out the ditches. Hmm. Then we upload that information into the tractor that makes the ditches. And so it has auto guidance on it. So it knows exactly where to go and where to put the ditches in. And we've found that that is a big moneymaker for us having a good drainage, especially for our, our soil types. Vertical tillage, how wide a width are you running? Um, around 53 feet, 50 to 53 feet. What kind of horsepower does that take? 
That takes a lot. <laughs> we have uh, three quad tracks. It's 580 engine horsepower. I'm not sure what the PTO horsepower is. Sure. But that's that's what it takes. But you're, we're going fast too, so you can right. get over a lot of acres in a day with that yeah. much uh, machinery. And and you, if you only have to hit it once, you know that's doesn't take long. Right. What kind of horsepower do you have in the planters? We still use two-wheel drive tractors, and it's around 280. Okay. Let's shift over to your career at Case IH. When did you start there, and what did you do, and what did you okay. do over the years? All right. Well, once I got my degree at the University of Illinois, I started with the International Harvester back mm-hmm. in 1977. Okay. I started out in the implement test group working on planters, tillage equipment, and forage harvesters. After that, I went into planter development, and I spent a lot of time on what we call the early riser planter. Sure. One of my first field trips that I had with the company was got a, got to spend a whole month in the wintertime down in Antigua, which was <laughs> a nice nice place to be at the time. Right. I also did a lot of plot work at Purdue University for the early riser planter and also in Florida. Then in the early 80s, I, I did a major switch. I went into engineering reliability and my major focus there was on planters and the new, at the time, Magnum tractors. Mm-hmm. I became a manager for grain drills and air drills for a while in the test group. And then in 1990, I started working for the Advanced Engineering Group. My first project there was working on what I would call smart, programmable tractor and combine monitors. And today we call those, at Case IH, they call them the Pro 1200. That's the programmable displays that you have in your sure. tractors and combines. 1994, uh, Case IH was the first company that came out with a factory-installed yield monitor. Mm -hmm. And so my job was to come up with the first desktop software program to help bring in that yield data and do uh, some simple analysis on the data. There were other companies out there, but Case IH decided that they wanted their own software. So that that was my big project. That was when, 1994? 94, yep. Yeah, okay. Then the rest of my career went from advanced engineering to innovation. So I worked on planter and seed meter improvement. I don't know if you're familiar with the ASM meter that we came out with. That was one of my big projects. Uh, Worked on auto guidance and autonomous vehicles back in 2000 already. One of the most interesting things that I was involved with there is in, in the year 2000, we had a demonstration for some of our um, higher level managers and we had a tractor take a planter out to the field all by itself. It planted a 10 acre field and came home all by itself. So that was way back in 2000. So we were way ahead of our time as far as that goes. But And you do realize that everything was, you know, we knew there were no obstacles or anything like that. At the time, we didn't have all the sensors that you have today. I also spent time working on sugarcane harvesters, grape harvesters, got involved with high-speed planter row units. And uh, one of the interesting things I did there is you, you talked about 12 mile an hour. Well, I did some plots where I put them in at 16 miles an hour. <laughs> that was that was kind of exciting too. Yeah. Right. And uh, I've also worked on uh, low disturbance, high-speed fertilizer applicators and electric drive, seed meters, and delivery systems. And then I retired. I remember one early on when we started No-Till Farmer. It was in 1972, and then in 72, 73, we went to the manufacturers and said, 
what planters do you have for for no-till? And most of them said, well, we got a planter who works under any conditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I always remember Case IH because I was impressed with something they did. They told us that they had a planter that would work in no-till. It was fine. And six months later, they took it off the market because they said the damn thing's not working in no-till. And I've always been impressed by a company who decided that it wasn't for no-till and they were willing to take it off the market. <laughs> and I don't remember the number of it or anything. Oh, okay. Well, you're probably going to talk about this next, but the breakthroughs in planters? Sure. I think, in our, in my opinion, the biggest thing was the staggered disc, which we already mentioned. We didn't see the need for colders, and Case mm -hmm. IH came right. out with that with the early riser, and I think that was 82, and got rid of the colders. And I think that was one of the biggest things that you know, the company did as far as uh, innovation in planters. The next biggest thing I think that had an impact, and this is something that I had a personal hand in, was the equalizing gauge wheels. Sure. And that gave us several advantages, too, because now at the higher speeds and a no-till, which usually you have rougher ground conditions, mm -hmm. it just made the row unit uh, ride so much uh, nicer, and you got better seed depth control. So I think that especially today, is probably one of the biggest innovations that really enables us to go at higher speeds that we're seeing today. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I think that has really helped us, and, and all companies for that matter, is the pneumatic down pressure systems, the hydraulic down pressure systems. Sure. And I was involved with a pneumatic down pressure system way back in the early 2000s, one of the things I'm most proud of is that I developed a system that could actually do automatic down pressure without any electronics at all. It had a spring system that sensed how much weight was put on the gauge wheels, and so it would adjust the down pressure automatically so that you didn't have to worry about going back there and adjust the row units all the time. Well, of course, by the time I got that working just fine, then we got advancements in electronics and load cells, and so that kind of made that concept a little bit outdated, so that never did make it to the market, but I, right. I was pretty proud of that. The other thing that uh, we worked on was suspension systems for a planter rodent. So now, not only do you have down pressure, but you also have a suspension system on the gauge wheels, which makes it even ride smoother. So I, I think that's something that never did make it to market, too. In the future, I think you'll see some of that. Yeah. People in Western Canada and the Dakotas are running air seeders. They're using right. them for corn and soybeans now. Is that going to is that a fad? Is going to stay with us, or planters going to catch up, or what? I guess I don't know enough about that to, <laughs> okay. to comment on that, Frank. But in general, though, I will I will say this is that I think the larger horsepower tractors and larger planters, I think, are going to slow down at a slower space. I'm not saying they won't get bigger, but I think the pace is going to slow down just because of all the limitations we have. Where I grew up, we have real narrow roads, and if you're going to have you know wider than 60 and 80-foot equipment, they're going to have to change the infrastructure, not only just because of width, but also because of the loads on the roads and bridges and things like that. So I think autonomous vehicles will come into their own eventually. I think they'll start out smaller, and you'll be talking more about, you know, fleet management and things like that. Sure. But as the technology increases, I think those widths on autonomous vehicles will get larger and larger, too. So um, it's going to be exciting. Looking well, forward to it. Yeah, we've got some people talking about swarm farming, where you might have a dozen units running in a field 
one guy controlling them from a pickup truck. Agco's got some things out like this that they're fooling around with robots and uh, maybe three of these u- small units replace one big planter. Who knows what's coming? Right, right. I, I think you're right. I think that's what's going to happen. Right. I pulled up an article we did. We had some comments in 2002, and you were talking about increasing speed and compaction. One of the things you talked about was, and you just mentioned this, was on the roads and big units, tire pressure, changing tire pressure from the roads to the fields. It's catching on a little bit. You had you've had some experience with that, haven't you? Right. I didn't personally work on it, but it was uh, there was a f- couple of fellows in our group that was working on it, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's that's the way to go. Um, you know, you're going to decrease your compaction. Obviously, it's actually easier, less expensive than tracks, and, and it, it really makes a lot of sense. Um, and as the technology and tire development develops, it's it's going to become more feasible, I think, to have those kinds of systems and I, they're already out there aren't they i mean with a yeah, lot of yeah, the companies a, yeah, yeah three or four companies got them they haven't caught on that fast among farmers but there's some guys using them and swearing by them yeah i'm a little surprised it hasn't caught on because for me that that makes a lot of sense down on the farm is your is the land pretty close together or you got a lot of road time Oh, we have a lot of road time. If you go one direction, it's 30 miles, and you go the other direction, it's 20 miles. So I would say the whole, you know, <laughs> if you look at the diameter, right. it's 50 miles. So You got on-farm storage, or do you sell at harvest, or what? No, we've we've got on-farm storage. We have almost enough storage for our whole crop, wow. uh, corn and soybean crop. Mm-hmm. So that makes it nice. We've been gradually increasing storage throughout the years, so... And it's not just because of extra land, it's because of yields, too, have been gradually increasing, too. What total capacity bushels would you have? We're around 750,000. Wow, all in one location? Well, no, not exactly. There are a couple bins on farms that are remote to us that we have because then we don't have to haul it as far, but most of it is at our farmstead. Yeah. So you got any tales to tell me about uh, other things you did at Case IH? I think I've I think I've told you everything I can remember, or <laughs> some things I can't tell you. That's fine, but, right? But anything that's covered with a patent, um, I've told you. All right, good, good. You were uh, for a long time. You would would come to the National No Tillage Conference and. Uh, you get a lot out of it. You used to get in the round tables and uh, yes, I did. And I, I did want to mention that. See, when I was working with CNH, they sponsored my trips first of all, so they sure. covered all the expenses and everything. And, and it's not that I can't afford it or anything, but I've just been too busy usually to get to the conferences. That that's kind of a busy time for me. Sure. However, I would like to get back to it. When I did come to the conferences. Whenever I got home, I always wrote a very comprehensive report on my trip, mm-hmm. and then I would circulate that company-wide, and that made it up to the higher echelons of the company, and everybody read them and got a lot out of them. And I'd like to think that the, some of the product development that's happened over the years has, you know, they've been paying attention to what I said in the report. and. Yeah. I think it's helped them realize how important no-till is. So um, I, I feel real good about that, and I think having the conferences and the magazine and everything, I really think has helped quite a bit 
in the, in the industry in general too. Great. Well, one of the things I remember about the roundtables and uh, your competitors would go too, and uh, the green people would sit in a roundtable and they wouldn't say a word, even when <laughs> even when some farmer was saying something they knew was totally wrong. They right. wouldn't say a word. I know. But I've been in I've been in the roundtables where you are were, and if somebody was saying something wrong, you'd try and correct them. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's important. I I, I don't like misinformation, and um, sometimes if you spread the rumor long enough, it becomes fact, and I hate to see that. Right, right. Well, it's been great. Yeah. You try to get down during uh, harvest season? And- I come down whenever I'm needed. Most of the time, though, I think my time is uh, better spent up here. They've got several, you know, hired help. My brother's got a couple sons-in-laws, and his daughters help out quite a bit, so they don't need as much help as they used to. But uh, if I had to, I do come down, and I really do enjoy it. Farming's a lot easier than it used to be, so I do still enjoy driving the tractor. That's like me. I grew up on a farm, and there's days like today that I'm glad I'm sitting in this office and not out breaking water in the livestock tanks. And then there's days in the summer I wish I was out there. But yep, that's right. You got it. Cover crops. What do you What do you think is going to happen? You're going to try and get over more acres. Well, I'd like to see our wheat acres increase. And like I said, that's that to me is a cover crop. We have tried doing some cover crop on some of our acres where we put some clover and oats, wheat, and stuff sure. like that. I don't know. For whatever reason, maybe we're doing it wrong. It just didn't give us uh, very good growth. Mm-hmm. And and we even put it in with a no-till drill, too. So I, I don't know what we did wrong, but it just didn't <laughs> seem to take hold. And yeah. it could have just been, we only tried that for one year, and it was on a limited acreage. And it just didn't pan out for whatever reason. So I think we're just kind of waiting to see how that develops, I guess is what I'm yeah. saying. It, it well, doesn't mean we won't do it in the future, though. One other question with high commodity prices, are you planting more beans this year or sticking with the rotation? No, we're sticking with 50-50. We, we like the crop rotation of corn, soybeans, and, mm-hmm. and wheat, so yeah. I think we're going to stick with that. What percentage of your acres would be wheat? That would be about 10 to 15 percent. Okay, and then the others split between? Then the others are split 50-50. Yeah. yeah, that's what I meant by that, right? Yeah, that's fine. I think I'm real high on the wheat double crop thing just because um, we don't need to go out and buy more land. And like I told you, it's with the price of wheat and soybeans going up, I think that's going to be a very profitable um, profit center if we keep doing that. And I just really like the idea of having cover over the soil all year round. I think that's the way to go. What's your uh, yield goal on wheat and double crop beans? Double crop beans, We've we, when we first started doing double crop, we didn't have the technology as far as planters go. We were right around 20 to 20. We thought if we got 20 or 25 bushel, we were doing great. Mm-hmm. But these last few years with our newer planters, with the better technology, automatic down pressure and things like that, sometimes our double crop beans have been beating our conventional beans, and we're, wow. we're getting you know 50 bushel an acre, which is, again, for our soils is pretty good. Our wheat varies all over the board. I think we're averaging around 80, but we'd like to see that consistently over 100. Mm-hmm. You know, but so far we're not there yet. At at your location, when are you putting the double crop beans in the ground? Uh, we like to like to get them the last week in June, and yeah. certainly by the first week in July. Right, that's great. Hey, this has been fascinating. Thank you very it's much. Been, and it's been great. 
Thanks to Frank and Keith, and thanks to our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for helping to make possible the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcast. That's no-tillfarmer.com backslash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm lead content editor Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening. I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. Can I just take a break here and take sure, sure. Uh, a drink of water? Hang on. We'll cut it. We'll cut your drinking out of the thing.